Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ezra Homeland. I didn't know who was going to make the first move. The cat was sort of moving one paw toward me, then moving it back toward Molly. It knew that it was going to have to fight one of us. I guess I was ready. I wasn't sure I was ready, but I guess... That and more. But first, I want to talk about live shows that are coming up. I want to start by talking about Detroit and Chicago. We're in Detroit, or Ferndale, Michigan, on July 30th. We're at the Magic Bag. And then on the 31st, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. Now, you can still pitch us to be a part of one of those shows. So if you are in Detroit or Chicago or nearby, pitch us a story. Just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions, and all the tips you need are right there for how to pitch us a story. Or if you know someone who might be good for the show in Detroit or Chicago, have them reach out to us. Now, we also have live shows happening in New York and LA soon. In LA, on June 14th, we're back at the Hotel Cafe. And in New York, on June 23rd, we're back at Caveat in New York City. Now, you can always find information about where our next live shows are happening, and that includes the live streams of shows. If you just go to risk-show.com tour. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com sale. And book your free consult today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is People Like Us and Ergo Fizmiz behind me now. And we just heard another one of those mashups of covers of the Risk theme song. We want to keep collecting covers of the Risk theme song. If you're a composer, a singer, an instrumentalist of any kind, whatever kind of music you make, whatever genre, you could do a cover of the Risk theme song. You can email me for more information about how to do that. You can also just go to risk-show.com music for more information. And of course, I'm always at kevin at risk-show.com. 
Now, we're calling this week's episode Emotional, <laughs> but to be frank, uh, I just wanted to name it something that started with an E, because on this week's episode, we have Emily, Ezra, and Aaron. It's a big week on the Risk Podcast for the letter E. Our first story was recorded at the recent Risk Live show in Portland, Oregon. This is Emily Pitts, who produces her own show right there in Portland called Locally Fameless. Look them up on Facebook. And now let's exit this hosting segment and enter this first story. See how completely out of control I'm getting with the letter E here today? Uh, this is Emily Pitts with a story we call... You've got a friend. So it was 2010, and I was a junior in college, and I was also a college athlete. I rode crew, which meant I was on a tight-knit rowing team that had a 5 a.m. practice and a 3 p.m. practice. And so I was with these 15 girls all the time. We were together at least three hours a day, six days a week, and I was really bored of them. I wanted new friends, interesting friends, friends who didn't care what I ate for breakfast. Sometimes that was candy, because I was an athlete. And so I decided, you know, I am too exhausted. I can't just go out and make friends. I have a 5 a.m. rowing practice. So I turned to the internet. Omegle had started up the previous year, and it was an anonymous chat site. You could log in, and you would get connected to anyone, anywhere in the world. And they would ask you your ASL, your age, sex, location. And so I would log in, and I'd be like, 23, female, Seattle. And then I matched with someone really early on, and they were like, 19, male, Boston. I was like, oh, cool. I'm a college student in Seattle. They're like, I'm a college student at Harvard. I was like, we have so many similarities. <laughs> so I was like, my name is Emily. And he was like, my name is Aaron. And so we started chatting. And I found out we had a lot of similarities. Like we were both tall. We were both into water sports. I played crew. He did water polo. He was from a Jewish family. I was from a Christian family. I was the oldest of five. He was like the fourth out of five. And I was like, we should be real friends. Here is my email address. Not my real one, the one I use for scams and promotions. And I gave it to him, never expecting to hear from him. But four days later, he emails me and he's like, YOLO, it's Aaron from Harvard. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're real friends now. And so I start emailing him. And he's on the East Coast, three hours ahead. I'm on the West Coast. And I have like to go to bed at, okay, I went to bed at 11, but I should have been going to bed at 8.30. And he was one of those people, we had cousin energy. It wasn't romantic, it was very cousin energy. I'd be like, hey, listen, you should probably study for your like important med school test. And he was like, you should probably go to bed. And I was like, you are absolutely correct. And so we would just chat back and forth about our lives. He was dating this girl named Blair. She was the love of his life. I would complain about my friends at practice and how they cared that I ate candy for dinner. And it was just a super supportive friendship. Like we finished up undergrad and we went to grad school. He went to Columbia. I went to the same college I was at. And then I got my master's and became a teacher. And he went into pediatric oncology. And we were always just there for each other. And I was like, we are such good friends. You were the friend I always wanted. Like you let me whine about everything. Like when my grandfather um, had died and I was missing his funeral due to an event I had to go to, he was just super supportive. And then when I got into teaching my first year and I was like crying all the time, he was like, Emily, my oldest sister is also a teacher and it's just really tough and eventually it gets better. Maybe, that's what she says. I was like, okay, okay. As our friendship went on and developed, he was, he was just the emotional support I needed. And I mean, he was kind of from a locally famous Boston family. And so he couldn't really talk to his friends about like what was going on in his life because like he had burned his mother's rosebush, her favorite rosebush when he was a kid in the Hamptons and she still hated him for it. Like he had some emotional damage and I was like really into that. <laughs> so it got to the point where I was like, okay, 
I'm actually coming to New York. It's 2018. It's been eight years. Are you going to be there? He's like, no, I'm not. He had married Blair, and she was working for the UN with Rwandan orphans. And so during the summer, they were going there. And so he's like, no, I'm not going to be in New York. I was like, oh, I wanted to meet you so badly. And he's like, okay, this is what you got to do. You got to go to the following places. He told me the best place to get olive bread. Uh, He also was like, you should go to the Kellogg pop-up store and the Guggenheim and like all of these fancy New York places. And I went to them and I was like, oh my gosh, you were right about almost everything. You weren't right about SpongeBob the musical. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) But you were right about like everything else. And so I never really questioned it. I was just like, Aaron is my friend. I really care about him. But my best friend, Claire, got a hold of this and she was like, Emily, this is not real. No, this is, no, eight years, and you haven't talked on the phone or video chatted? I was like, no, he's on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, it's a three hour time difference. She's like, girl. I was like, what? She's like, no. I'm like, yes. She's like, But like the seed of doubt had been sown. So now I had to do like some reconnaissance mission stuff. I had to be like, hey Aaron, remember the time when Uh, you told me that the Guggenheim was the second best museum in New York. And he's like, no, it is the first best museum in New York. I was like, oh, okay, that checks out. Aaron, remember when you talked about how you went to Taco Bell that one time after you're doing Coke? He's like, no, I didn't do Coke. I had crushed a Batterall. I was like, oh, okay, that also checked out. Like I had tried to change the details on him and he was like, no, that's not the way the story went. I was like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. But then I went to New York in 2019 for spring break. I was like, Aaron, I just want to meet up. I care about you so much. I got tickets to the storytelling show. I think we should go. Like, I bought one for you. Can you come? And he's like, my wife just had twins. I don't know if I can make it. I was like, come on. We've been friends for nine years at this point. Show up. He stood me up and I was like, okay, it's on. So then I found out that you could put someone's medical license into the New York database. And if they have a medical license, their name will pop up. So I put his name in, didn't pop up. I tried several iterations of his name, didn't pop up. And I was like, oh no, this is happening to me. Oh no. But I was like, you know what? This, this guy has been my friend for nine years. I'm invested. There's been nine seasons of this great show. My own personal soap opera. Like, I remember the time he accidentally ate non-vegan food. And I was there for him. Oh, no. We got in an argument. He said I said something insensitive. I said he was being too sensitive. And he stopped talking to me. And this was not uncommon. Sometimes we'd go for long stretches where we just wouldn't talk to each other because I was like busy doing school stuff and he was busy doing like pediatric oncology stuff. And I'm very trusting. (laughs) And then in June of 2020, I get a text from Aaron. I hadn't heard from him for like six months. He's like, Emily, I need to talk to you. I was like, okay, how are you? How have things been going? I miss you. He's like, I've missed you too. Um, I just want to start off by saying when we met, my parents were getting a divorce and I was really fat and ugly and lonely and you were there for me and you saved my life. And I just, I'm so grateful to you. And I was like, but? Because there's always a but. He's like, my name is Sammy. And I see the name pop up on my screen and it's S-A-M-M-I. I was like, you're a girl? I've been catfished by a girl? Well, that didn't really matter because we were never romantically involved. It was always platonic. I didn't really care about that. But I thought I should do some like, you know, digging to figure out like what was true and what was not. And I was like, well, how old are you? And she says, 22. We've been friends for 10 years. I was catfished by a (laughs) 12-year-old.
And very internally, quickly, I'm like, am I a creep? And I was like, okay. Are you even vegan? She's like, yes, I am. I was like, are you Jewish? She's like, also yes. I was like, oh, okay. So how much of that was real? She's like, a lot of it was real. I am Jewish, I'm vegan, I am 22, I did get into Columbia. I'm like, clearly you're not a pediatric oncologist. She's like, no, not yet. And I was like, okay, kid, okay. I mean, it's not great to feel like tricked by a 12-year-old, but usually I catch them much, much faster, given that my profession is dealing with 12-year-olds. And I was just like horrified. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been swindled by a 12-year-old. I mean, they're 22 now, but they're always going to be a 12-year-old in my mind. And I was like, what the hell, Emily? You are so gullible. He literally sent you an email that said, YOLO, it's Aaron from Harvard. He thought that Guggenheim was the first best museum in New York. What have I done? But as I got talking to Sammy, she was like, you are this really influential person in my life. My parents were getting a divorce. They weren't paying attention to me. You were always there for me. And I watched you live your life and just do things you wanted to do. And you inspired me. Like, I got into Yale. I was like, okay, at least you're smart. <laughs> you were smart enough to catfish me. There's hope for you. There really is. But the things that made... Aaron, Sammy, or Sammy Aaron, were like our genuine concern and care for each other. The fact that we would check in with each other, the fact that she wanted to know the details of my life in like a non-creepy way so that she could support me. And <laughs> I still value that. I still value our friendship and our cousin energy, even though I did take medical advice from like, you know, <laughs> someone who wasn't actually a pediatric oncologist. I have not forgiven myself for that. <laughs> but those things, those things were real. Those things were tangible. And that's why, even two years later, Sammy and I are still friends. Thank you. This is risk. This is the flying, the fear, what? The fearless flyers <laughs> behind me now. And we just heard an interstitial back there by Jeff Barr and Darren Izzard, all about the word catfish. Hey, there's something really wonderful we're putting up at patreon.com slash risk this week, and that is I do a check-in where I listen back to some of those testimonials that you guys sent in for our 600th episode last week. I had so much fun listening back to those testimonials and then sharing what people's kind words meant to me uh, this is the first of several of these that we're going to do, and we would like to also let people know that you can keep sending those to us. We love hearing people's voices, talking about what the show means to them, or what a particular story opened up for them, or what sharing the show with someone else meant to them. So don't miss out on all our amazing bonus content at patreon.com slash risk. We very much need the help of our listeners 
to keep Risk running. And that's a great way to do it and be a part of that little Patreon community over there. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now, we have two more remarkable stories on this week's episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Erin Lesson Mahone, a story that she shared also at that Risk Live show in Portland, Oregon. But before that, we're going to hear from Ezra Homeland. Now, both of these stories have either people and or animals in harm's way, traumatic situations, this first one was edited by Taj Easton. Again, it's Ezra Homeland with a story we call 10 Unforgettable Pounds. It was mid-August, and my niece Sally, she'd come up to spend a little time with her cousins, my daughters, Tolu and Greta. Tolu was 10, and Greta was 8, and Sally was 9, so it worked out pretty good. On Sally's final night with us, I suggested that we should go out to Buck Creek and do a little trout fishing. It was a spot I often took my girls to. It was a cool little spot where kids could learn how to trout fish. There was great little brook trout and rainbows and... It was a beautiful little creek and this cool little trail that ran along it. And about three quarters of the mile downstream, there was this awesome, like, 15-foot waterfall. So my wife, Molly, and I, and Tolu and Greta and Sally, and our little dog, Izzy, we all made our way downstream and stopped off at all the little spots and caught trout along our way and finally ended up at the waterfall. And the waterfall is this amazing little spot where you can kind of dangle over the edge and drop your fly into the water and see the trout rise for it and hook them and it was super cool and we all caught fish and everyone was having a good time and then as evening fell we decided it was about time to get back and so we headed back to the car and started walking back up the trail the girls were about 30 feet ahead of us as we were walking and Molly was carrying Izzy in her arms, who had tired out throughout the day. As we were walking, we saw this shadow sort of lunge onto the trail, and the girls screamed. And Molly and I looked at each other, and we instantly just started running as fast as we could toward it. We both sort of knew exactly what it was, but we weren't sure. And as we got there, we saw exactly what it was. It was a cougar like a 60-pound juvenile, and it had separated Greta from the other two girls. And as we approached, the cat looked back at us, and realizing that its plans had sort of been foiled, it turned back toward us, as we were now, like, the new threat. And the cat slunk slowly toward me, and I was just staring in its eyes. I mean, cougar's eyes are wild. You can't imagine. It's not like zoo animals or anything like that. Like a cougar in the wild, those yellow eyes are fierce, wild. And they were just staring right at me and I was staring right back at it. 
Molly sort of came up and flanked its left side. I was standing just about ready to like boot it in the face. I didn't know what to do. I mean, this was beyond me. And so the cat, it started looking at Molly, then looking at me, then looking at Molly, then looking at me. And I was up on my toes. I was ready to just boot it as hard as I could in the face. I mean, this was my moment, I guess, to like be a real dad. Like I've always valued being a dad. I mean, I've taken a lot of time to read books with my girls, practice sports with my girls, do everything that I could. I mean, there's a lot of things I haven't provided. Financial security, a great place to live, but you know, I've always valued being a good dad. But this was sort of different. This was like being a dad on a different level, like protecting your kids in a very physical way. Like I had to fight a fucking cougar to protect my kids. And it was a little overwhelming. I stared at that cat and I was ready, just up on the balls of my feet, like, oh, ready. And Molly was up on the left side and I didn't know who was gonna make the first move. The cat was sort of moving one paw toward me, then moving it back toward Molly. It knew that it was gonna have to fight one of us. And I guess I was ready. I wasn't sure I was ready, but I guess. I thought about like, how do the claws actually like rip through a human's flesh? Is it quick? Is it easy? Does it just tear it off? I didn't know. And as we stood there in this crazy sort of standoff, I wasn't about to make the first move. I was waiting for it to make the first move. And then Molly, out of nowhere, she just raised her hands above her head and gave this crazy visceral scream right in the cat's face, like three feet away from it, maybe less, maybe two feet, just Wah! just this guttural fucking childbirthing scream. And I was blown away by it. I was like, oh, that's what I should do. And so I just fucking screamed as loud as I could because I didn't want the cat to attack Molly. I didn't want it to attack the kids. This was between me and the cat. I guess this is kind of what it meant to be a dad. And I just stared right at it and just kept screaming as loud as I could. And the cat was looking right at me. Unfortunately, Molly had dropped her dog, Izzy, in the process of screaming. Now Izzy was barking wildly to the left of Molly, and the cat instantly changed focus, stared right at Izzy, and pounced like it was nothing on top of the dog. And poor Izzy, she yelped, and then somehow escaped from underneath her paws, and she ran down to the creek, and the cat instantly gave chase. And I ran to the girls, who were now huddled together in this ball, sort of weeping. And I hugged them as hard as I could, told them like, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We need to walk up the trail. We need to go, we need to go. And I looked back, and Molly, she wasn't following us. She was starting to head down to the trail to get after Izzy. And I looked at Molly, sort of in disbelief, like she was gonna go after our dog. And I said, hey, no, you cannot do this. No, 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 Izzy is gone. She is gone. And as soon as I said it, the girls just instantly started bawling and I felt horrible. And Molly turned back toward us, sort of saw the girls all sobbing and crying together. And then she returned toward us. And then as a group, we all started walking up the trail trying not to run, trying to do this crazy little walk where we're all just wanting to sprint as fast as we could back to the car, but we knew, don't run from animals, don't run from animals. So we did this sort of like quick walk all the way back to the car. And then we all got inside the car and there was this crazy adrenaline just kind of filling the air between us. It was wild. I'd never felt that before. And as we sat there, we all 
sort of realized exactly what had happened. I mean, Izzy had sacrificed herself for us. Izzy was our first family dog. I mean, our girls loved Izzy, you know, like any first pet. It's difficult. You love your first pet. They would take Izzy and Izzy loved to like climb underneath their sheets and make little beds in their bed. She loved to be underneath the blankets. She was this little 10 pound terrier that we got from a rescue shelter. She had these little floppy ears that kind of hung over and she was a fun little dog. But at the same time, she had this fear of men. And anytime I made a quick movement, she was on edge like, oh, are you gonna hit me? It's kind of like girls who grow up with shitty dads, you know? It's that same sort of thing. It's that thing that I never wanted my daughters to feel. And so as time went on, you know, Izzy kind of got used to me and started to like me as well. And I felt really good about that. And maybe that's why Izzy sacrificed herself for us. I wasn't sure. And as we drove back along the road with the reality sort of setting in, we all rolled down our windows and screamed, Izzy, as loud as we could over and over, listening, listening for any sort of sound, any sort of yelp, anything. But we didn't hear anything. And we slowly drove back to our house. And we were all in tears. And everyone was sort of in shock. And when we got back to our house, Greta and Sally climbed up into Greta's bed and they got underneath the covers and they just kind of hugged each other. And Molly stood over them and offered as much comfort as she could. And Tulu and I went into our bed and we just sort of laid there and stared at the ceiling. And tears were just streaming down our face. It was difficult. It was really, really difficult, and I didn't know what to say. And I just kept repeating over and over and over that Izzy had made the ultimate sacrifice, and she was an amazing, an amazing dog. And she'd given everything for us. It really hurt all of us. The next day, I called the Fish and Wildlife to report the incident, and I met the ranger out at the exact spot where we'd been. And he was sort of surprised when I told him our story. Like, a cougar would actually do that, would come amongst a group of people. He thought it was really strange. He said he'd never heard anything like that before. And that kind of stuck with me, like, why us? Why our family? Like, what What was it about us? Were we weak? Did we show signs of something? I didn't get it. And it stuck with me forever, and I kept thinking about it. And this thought, this strange behavior of the cat, as I was thinking about this story a few nights ago, I was driving back from the supermarket with my daughter Greta in the front seat. And as we turned down our road, it was about eight in the evening, we saw the shadow sort of slink across the road and into the front corner of our yard. And Greta and I, we both knew exactly what it was. And we looked at each other and she just tensed up instantly. And I pulled down into our driveway. I turned off the engine and she turned toward me and she's like, Dad, I am not getting out of the car. I'm not getting out of the car. I'm sleeping in here tonight. And I told her that was fine, that was fine. And I opened the car door, shut it, and I was like, oh shit. Here we go, fucking again. I'm lying under the car on the ground, watching the tires roll past my face, 
just centimeters away, and I'm thinking, ever the optimist, well, <laughs> at least they're not rolling over me. <laughs> it's November 1st, 1994. A beautiful fall afternoon at the beginning of my junior year of high school. I feel confident. I have a new boyfriend, a lead role in the fall musical, and a newfound enthusiasm for shoplifting, drugs, and sex. <laughs> Before this moment, I had always been anxious and emotional. I was often crying, perpetually overwhelmed. So this newfound uh, confidence, self-assuredness was replacing my default settings of fear and anxiety and self-doubt, and I liked to take risks. So I walk out of play rehearsal on my way to my car in the school parking lot when my best friend drives up to me in her brand new black Saturn SL2 with personalized license plates. I shake my ass flirtatiously and impulsively jump on the hood. Before I can even think about it, she accelerates and my confidence evaporates. In that moment, I realize that I am not Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> I am Chucky from Rugrats. <laughs> I freak out. I try to stop the car with my feet by hanging them over the front of the hood, and they drag the ground for a couple of seconds until I am pulled underneath, twisting and turning under the car. Completely unaware at the time that so much more than my body is being crushed. A few seconds later, the car comes to a stop with me still trapped underneath. Now being strangled by my favorite black silk and Taylor sweater, my Doc Martin knockoff still tied perfectly beneath mangled tights, and my favorite now ruined vintage miniskirt. A few dutiful onlookers jump into action. They cut the sweater from my neck, they call 911, they lie on the ground beside me to keep me calm until EMS arrives. About 50 feet away is a school bus, overflowing with about 75 sequined, stunned, and staring show choir kids on their way to a competition, now wondering if they had just watched their friend die. EMS arrives, and they immediately cut off the rest of my clothes. Those kids might have missed their show choir concert, but they still got quite a show that day. <laughs> I spent about 30 minutes under the car and about 15 in a helicopter being medevaced to the local trauma center. And the entire time I'm under the car, I am shockingly calm, like oddly calm. The second they put me in that helicopter, strapped down to that backboard, and placed that oxygen mask over my face, I immediately panic. I'm screaming, and I'm crying, and I'm clawing at my face, begging them, please take it off, take it off, I can't breathe. It's policy, we can't take it off, I'm sorry. So I adapt. I spend five hours in the emergency room, in excruciating pain, of which I am only now aware because of other people's reports. Because it is true that there are certain types of pain that your body won't allow you to remember. After scans and tests, the doctors announce that I have a broken pelvis in five places. Surgery won't be necessary, but I will not be able to walk at all until it heals. Maybe a few months, if I do what I'm told. My parents ask if I'll ever be able to have children, and the doctors just shrug and say, wait and see. They take my contact lenses in the emergency room, and I don't have my glasses. And my eyes are very, very bad, like, like liability in the zombie apocalypse bad. <laughs> I spend a week in the hospital, of which I have no memory, except for a couple of blurry flashes and the discovery that morphine makes me itch so bad that I bleed. At the end of the week, 
They transport me home in an ambulance to my new domain, a hospital bed in the family room. No privacy, no independence, no going to the bathroom by myself. After the fog of morphine lifts, I discover that I'm covered in something called road rash on my arm, my shoulder, my hip, and my side. It is so gross. Some parts of it hold the black from the asphalt for far longer than you would ever imagine possible. And other spots are exposed down to the muscle. They get green and pussy and infected if they're not cleaned multiple times a day. Every day, I am visited by nurses and homebound educators with weird beliefs and questionable hygiene practices. <laughs> One of them informs me of the power of Jesus and the magic of dry shampoo, of which I'm certain she never used. I'm occasionally visited by friends and family. I spend two months in the bed and six weeks in a wheelchair. I am patient. I never complain. I do as I'm told. I watch every episode of Taxi and the Bob Newhart show on Nick at Night. I watch Funny Girl on repeat and sing every song at the top of my lungs. I hate Gone with the Wind. And I rediscover the Eagles and listen unironically to Take It to the Limit on repeat. <laughs> I am patient. I do as I'm told. I get along with my parents. I do my schoolwork. I even laugh when one night in the middle of December, I am jolted out of a deep sleep when the Christmas tree falls out of its stand on me in the bed. The hits keep coming. <laughs> I talk to my boyfriend on the phone every single day, and everyone says what a wonderful attitude I have. I'm following the cardinal yet unspoken rule. Thou shalt not make other people uncomfortable. So, after three and a half months, one fair day in the middle of February, just before Valentine's Day, my father rolls me into the orthopedist's office, and they shout, you're healed! And for the first time since November 1st, I stand up, and I walk out of the doctor's office. I did what I was told, and it paid off. No surgeries, no setbacks. Still don't know if I can have children, but we'll wait and see. You're still young. You'll cross that bridge when you come to it. I push through the excruciating pain of walking the half-mile, multiple-times length of the school every day, refusing to use the crutches they gave me. And I get a lead in the spring musical. One day, I'm at rehearsal, and the scars are still fresh. And the director looks at me with disdain and says, can we cover those things up so nobody has to look at them? I remember the cardinal rule and just smile and give the performance of my young life. Now that I am healed physically, I can get back to being myself. At least I can try. It's really easy to pretend because no one talks about it. Not my teachers, not my parents, not my friends, and least of all, me. I get very good at pretending. I'm just ignorant enough to believe that I can return to normal. Sure, on occasion, I burst into panic for absolutely no reason. Like every time I drive through an intersection, which is not very occasionally. I can't make the simplest of decisions. I can't apply to colleges. I have chronic migraines. I can't keep a job. I don't trust anyone. I need constant reassurance. And I can't control my emotions. No one asks me if I need help, and I don't ask. We just all pretend that this is completely normal. I have panic attacks and jet skis and in dentist's office. And almost every time I'm a passenger in a car, time passes, and things get easier. 
life is incredibly difficult for me for a very long time, but things do improve. I'm 40 and in graduate school to become a therapist, and I read the diagnostic criteria for PTSD for the first time, and I go, shit, that's what the fuck is wrong with me. I'm also 40 when it's time to teach my daughter how to drive. I was able to have children, after all. Three, in fact, thank you. All born by C-section, because there are bone spurs in the birth canal from the accident. It's hard for me to believe that I've gone 23 years with undiagnosed PTSD, and not one of those therapists ever thought maybe that might be a possibility of what was going on with me. But it was even harder for me to accept that I would not be able to teach my daughter how to drive, my daughter who was in the exact same place in her life that I was all those years ago, and I wasn't going to be able to show up for her. It was impossible to believe, to accept, so I did, and it was agonizing. But she was different than me. She was confident, and she was smart, and she was capable, and she was risk-averse. Thank you very much, Mom. <laughs> but it never got easier. I've done all this work over all these years, and I've healed all these different parts, and I help people heal themselves now, and I'm still fucking terrified of cars. So a month ago, I pulled my emotional support husband off to the side, and I said, here's the deal. I've showed up in every way possible. I can't be the one to teach the middle kid who is now 15 how to drive. It's time for me to ask for help. And he was like, okay. And the sky didn't fall, and I wasn't a terrible person. And my husband's going to do it. And it took me 27 and a half years, but I finally got out from under that car. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Miley Cyrus behind me now, and we just heard from Aaron Lesson Mahone. Aaron runs the extraordinary If You Could See Me project. Uh, it's a storytelling project where people share about mental illness, about surviving trauma, about navigating some of the not-so-safe spaces in our society today, look them up at ifyoucouldseeme.com. 
Folks, don't forget that we teach storytelling in many ways. You can look us up at thestorystudio.org. We do online workshops. We have video workshops that you can download and do in your own time. We do one-on-one training. We do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses or any other kind of team or organization. We get constant rave reviews from these companies that we've done these custom tailored workshops for like Google and Pfizer and American Express and Citibank and so many more. It's the same coaches that help our storytellers prepare for risk that teach at thestorystudio.org. So come on over and check us out. And I myself do some one-on-one training with people. You can look me up at kevinallison.com and be sure to follow all of our socials. We're at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.